Good morning, everybody. How are you? Good. I'm glad to hear it. Well, as was mentioned, my name is Brad, and I'm the senior pastor here. I think it was also mentioned that I would love to get coffee with you, really anybody in this room, but particularly if uh, you're on the newer side and we haven't connected before, I would love to meet you. And the coffee is on me, and I'd love to find out, you know, what you're trying to do in life, if you have any questions for me or about the church. Um, I'd love to have a chance to get to know you a little bit better and help facilitate whatever's going on in your life these days. So uh, my email is on the back page of your bulletin, I think. Maybe it might be in the middle, actually. I've kind of lost track. Uh, I'm in there, I promise. And uh, send me an email, and we'll get together. So a question to start us off. When do we develop the virtue of discipline. I remember when my son, who's now three, was one year old. And at that age, he was just a little bit too young to know anything about discipline, at least when it came to food. He loved to eat. It's not quite the same these days, but he loved to eat. And he had one approach to eating. I like to call it the cookie monster approach. Everybody knows Cookie Monster, right? Nom, 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 nom. And like it all goes in at one time. There's no like bite, bite. It's like everything in the mouth, all at once, two hands, uh, until it's all gone. In fact, one time we were in a grocery store, and I turned my back for a moment, and I saw he picked up an apricot. Oh, that's cool. He's going to play with an apricot, whatever. It smells good, whatever. Turned my back again, came back. The whole thing was in his mouth. So we had to watch him. When do we outgrow that? In 2014, the Oxford English Dictionary was deciding on the word of the year. You know they do that? It's not just Oxford. Webster's does theirs. Every year, people start using new words, and the ones that are the most popular and seem like they're going to last will be adopted as real words, like put in the dictionary as a real word. So what do you think uh, the word of the year was in 2014? This is hard. So, you know, but what, what would you guess might be the word of the year in 2014? Selfie. What? It's selfie. Someone said selfie. They're right. Someone Googled it. No, Justin just has, he has room up there for all sorts of interesting knowledge, and it takes advantage. So selfie was the number one word of the year. But in the finals was another word, binge watching. Okay, you guys know what that means, right? So I read an article about binge-watching in The Atlantic, and they used a few phrases to try and describe the phenomenon of binge-watching. So this was one of them. Quote, well, I was going to go outside on Saturday, but then the good wife happened. Anyone here binge-watch anything? What's the last thing you binge-watch? Just someone shout a few things out. Great British Bake Show. Great. British Bake Show. Great. What else? What? D-O-A. Cheers? Cheers? All right. Retro 80s. This is us. She cried for eight straight hours. (laughs) Anything else? Expanse. Expanse. Ooh, I heard about Expanse. I have not watched yet. Man in the High Castle. Oh, man. I haven't started that because the premise depresses me. Anything else? Designated Survivor. Designated Survivor. Okay. Kiefer Sutherland fan. So we all know what binge-watching is. You sit down, 
Uh, often you think you're just going to watch one. Five hours later, you've watched <laughs> however many fit in five hours, and you're thinking, do I want to keep going, right? And they did some actual research on the impact that binge-watching has on this. But first, I want to give you another quote. Uh, the, the author of the article said, quote, Often I'll be like, okay, I'm just going to watch this one episode while I sit on the couch and fold laundry. That's what Ashley Fetters, the associate editor of The Atlantic, says. And then she went on to say, and then, yes, suddenly five hours later, I'm still on the couch with only half the laundry folded. <laughs> and then other times, I'm like, nope, today is Saturday, and I'm going to watch Parenthood and eat cereal all morning. <laughs> now, there's a difference there, because what research shows is when your binge watching is not planned, that at about the two-hour mark, you start to feel kind of dirty or slimy, <laughs> right? But if you plan your binge watching, like this woman who wants to watch Parenthood and eat cereal all Saturday morning, it has a different effect. It can actually uh, be fun and joyful, and you don't feel bad afterwards because it was intentional. Now, one implication of this article is that exercising discipline made viewing television, even massive amounts of television, more enjoyable. And I think there is something to this. We often, I think, think of discipline as a real drag, right? Something that we have to do, but that limits our enjoyment of life. And the question is, would life be better if I ate the entire bag of Oreos? <laughs> so when we limit ourselves to just a handful of cookies, we're not satisfied. But if we eat the entire bag, we feel yucky, like we've over-binged. So what I'm going to suggest today is that there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way to approach things in our lives and what I'm going to suggest is the practice of, wait for it, discipline. Oh, yeah. Can I get an oh, yeah? Anyone here excited about discipline this morning? I hear an ouch, some murmurs. We're going to talk about the wild world of discipline and how you can live that exciting adventure. Are you ready? And I'm joking, but I'm also serious, because there's something about sucking the marrow out of life that you cannot do if you just follow every impulse or if you restrict yourself all the time. So how does this work? We're going to look at our key verse today, and then we'll talk about four things that I think that can help us live the wild, crazy amusement park ride of discipline. Let's go. Galatians 5, verses 16 to 26. So I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
Against such things there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. All right, in this passage, I think we can see at least four things that we need to understand to experience the wild world of discipline in our lives. And I think it comes from this idea of what Paul calls the fruit of exciting self-control. That's what we're talking about today. And the first thing we need is we need help. Willpower, according to Paul in this passage, Paul's the author of this, is not enough to produce discipline in our lives. It helps, but as anyone who has ever failed at keeping a New Year's resolution can tell you, with the big things in our lives, it's not enough. It's not. That thing you're trying to change, that big thing, not a small habit, not maybe, oh, I wish I could go to bed on time, which is important and a good thing, but that big thing that's been tripping you up. Willpower is not enough. At least it seems like that's what Paul is saying. Instead, Paul encourages his hearers to look for help from the Spirit of God, but in an interesting way. To receive help, I don't know if you picked up on this, location is important to Paul. In Paul's writings, grace is not so much a philosophy or an approach as it is a location. So Paul writes in this passage, you've fallen from grace. Grace is a place you can fall from. A place, a sphere, a locale where your experience of life is colored, filled, and saturated by the ongoing experience, not only of the acceptance of God, but of his help. Walking by the Spirit in this passage is another way to communicate this possibility. Walking or living by the Spirit is living in the sphere of grace, where God's Spirit is with you and helping you. That's what grace is. Now, in this passage, we see, does that make sense? We'll keep talking about this. In this passage, we see something that is actually opposed to this experience of life. Did you notice it? It's this term, the flesh. How many of you in the last week talked with someone at work about how tough the flesh is? Anybody? The flesh. Anyone use that term anywhere in your life in the last month? No, don't pull out a Bible study or something. Like in your, who uses this term, the flesh? Anyone? Anyone you know? People you're probably scared of, and you turn around and you go the other way. The flesh. What in the world does that mean? No one talks like this anymore. No one uses the term the flesh in everyday normal life. So what in the world is the flesh? Sounds weird. Sounds kind of super spiritual. Maybe, I don't know. It's not a very attractive sounding word. What is it? Now we might be tempted to think that when Paul uses the term the flesh, he's referring to uh, a literal body like our flesh and bone, right? that somehow our physical selves are at war with the Spirit of God. But I don't think that's it. When Paul describes the acts of the flesh, some of them are about things that we do with our physical body. So he talks about sex and orgies and debauchery, I think, at different points. But most of them 
most of the acts of the flesh are social and emotional things. Discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. Those aren't physical things. And sex, sex is very much a social and emotional activity, right? I think what Paul is talking about here is much more closely related to the idea of impulse control. And at the same time, Paul does a surprising, at least I think it's interesting thing. He lumps the flesh into the same boat as living under the law. Did you notice that? He says, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And this isn't what I would expect. I think we would expect these two things, right, to be polar opposites. The flesh over here, living under the law over here, right? So living under the law sounds like I eat one Oreo. The flesh sounds like I eat the whole bag, right? And we would expect the flesh and the law to be warring against each other. But Paul shows them as both warring against the spirit. The flesh and living under the law are, are, are their bedfellows, strange bedfellows, right? Both attacking the life and the work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul shows them both as doing the same thing but in different ways. Here's what they're doing. So they're both cutting out the need for God's help. That was our first point. These are two different ways to cut out the need for God's help and instead relying on our best that we can do, our own independent actions to bring happiness. But they're both cutting out grace. In other words, life by the flesh is a life of autonomy, right? It's our best efforts to follow our impulses to happiness and fulfillment on our own. It's a life that prefers to trust our own abilities to get whatever we want to be and experience a happy life without any help. Follow your impulses. Your impulses will guide you. The more you give in to them, the happier you'll be. It's a life that resists God's input and his help. It's a life that resists grace. Now, living under the law, although we might not expect it, does the same thing in a different way. If living by the flesh says, I don't need God's help, I can follow my impulses to happiness, and living under the law says, uh, then living under the law says, I can control God by following all of the rules and forcing God by my righteous behavior to bless my life. And this approach takes the focus off of God and puts it on our abilities to manipulate him by our behavior. Living under the law is also a life that resists grace. So there are two sides of the same coin. They both resist the help of God. They just do it in different ways. And both are rooted in misplaced confidence. They take us out of the sphere of grace. I think Paul is saying that if you try to live by the law, you'll end up in the same place as if you indulge every broken default setting that you have for happiness. And that place is miserable. And in this passage, you can see he's saying that it's going to lead you to a life full of hatred, discord, jealousy, and insatiable driving appetites that you can never satisfy. 
And I think his question is, is this the life that you want? I think he's asking the questions of those who are reading this letter and who had already decided by choosing to follow Jesus that they wanted something different. And so he reminds them of something better that they hoped for when they started the journey in the first place. Something that can motivate them away from a misplaced, overreaching self-confidence and back into the sphere of grace. That's the second thing. We need a promise of something better. Paul does list the acts of the flesh because you can sense he thinks it's, they're a real turnoff to his readers. And he assumes that his readers will associate these with the life they had before they decided that they wanted to follow Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. Warning people that something is bad for them can be helpful, but it has a limited motivating power. It only works so far. Now, I've had a lot of friends over the years who have tried to quit smoking. I'm sure you have too. There's probably a lot of people in this room who have tried to quit smoking. You're thinking about trying it again. And I've seen people start, stop. I've seen people have a lot of success too. But my friends who quit usually had something else in mind than the bad things that could happen to their body. Here's what I mean. There's warning labels all over cigarettes, right? I'm sure those are helpful on one level. But the thing that got my friends over the hump would be if something else happened. They get married. They have a kid. And suddenly they have this picture of something in life that is more valuable to them, that offers more happiness than the immediate gratification, the immediate happiness that comes from smoking a cigarette. They have a picture of something bigger and better long-term. That's helped my friends stop smoking, the ones who tried. And Paul does something similar here. He does warn his readers, right, about the effects of indulging the flesh. But he doesn't stop there. Instead, he offers them a picture of something better that they can have. Verse 22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the things that I think we are all really after. Whether we approach them independently by indulging our own impulses, or by trying to make them happen, by following the rules, we all want joy, love, and peace. All of us. And if we're in a situation where we have a choice to make, an impulse is leading us one direction, but a rule says it's the wrong way to go, what do we do? And at this point, I think Paul knows that we need a promise, something bigger, better than what an impulse could offer, and something that can motivate beyond what a rule can do to help us make a decision. See, impulses are too short-term to trust, and rules just tend to make that impulse more attractive. But a promise can help move us out of the spheres of impulse and legalism and back into the sphere of grace, where we consider where God can take us if we trust him. And it reminds us that we have 
long-term places in our lives that are so much better than what's offered in the moment and that God can help us realize those things. Promises help make room in our lives for the activity of the Holy Spirit. And making room for the Holy Spirit is essential because of the nature of who the Spirit is. There's a third thing we need. We need some real power, some real help, some real juju, some real something, right? I think the big warning that Paul gives in this passage is that the flesh and the law, ways that we push grace away, will cause us to miss the kingdom of God. So he says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the implication is that if we walk in the Spirit, we can experience the kingdom of God. Or in other words, it's the Spirit that brings us the kingdom of, or that brings the kingdom of God into our lives. And the kingdom of God is God's invading power that comes into the world and our lives to put things right. There's a theologian, his last name is Hayes, who wrote, The war between flesh and spirit is part of the eschatological rescue mission through which God is bringing redemption to an enslaved world. He says the spirit provides a counteracting force which motivates and directs them to exclude the flesh. The spirit provides the power we need to live in the sphere of grace and experience the fruits of the spirit, life the way it should be. And I think this is a really helpful perspective to embrace. When we read this passage, I think our first impulse can be to picture it like this dilemma that's going to be projected behind me, something that Homer Simpson often faces, right? We got Homer, he's got an angel on one shoulder, like holy Homer, and he's got a devil on the other one, evil Homer, right? Now, in our lives, I don't think anybody wants to do evil. I haven't met someone yet that's like wakes up in the morning and thinks, boy, what I really want to do is make the world a more miserable place for everyone else. And I also think that everybody wants to be happy, right? Who doesn't? I've never met a person that didn't want peace, love, and joy like we talked about. But let me suggest this. Instead of putting your focus on good or evil, think about where you want to be. Where you want to be, things like love, peace, joy, self-control, healthy relationships, good community. If you think about where you want to be, then evil in this perspective isn't something that's an option, but rather an obstacle. One of the things that you have to overcome to get to where you want to be. Now, how are you going to get to where you want to be? If you can get there on your own, if you can overcome the challenges before you, the evil in the way, if you can do that on your own, then great. Follow the rules that you think can get you there or follow the impulses that you have. But if you think you need help, turn to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the power of the kingdom of God. Welcome his rescue mission to restore the world into your life. And the power to stay on track, to get to where you really want to be, is in the sphere of grace. Because that's where the Holy Spirit is. And the last thing. We talked a lot about 
grace and um, sort of letting go of this idea of being completely and fully independent, not needing any help. But the fourth thing I would like us to think about is that we need a part to play. We need a part to play. Verse 24 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now that, I think, is a little bit odd. Um, Because of what I've done for a living, I've read the Bible a lot. And a big theme of the Bible is this idea of grace, right? God doing for you what you can't do for yourself. But Paul here is talking about something else. He's talking about the people that he's writing to crucifying the flesh. Something that they're participating in. It's not just happening to them. It's what I think sometimes is referred to as working faith. Or that faith is not what we believe, but what we believe lived out. We have a part to play. We're partners. This is good. We aren't just waiting for something to happen to us. We're looking for opportunities to crucify the broken patterns and the broken impulses in our lives. This, I think, is part of what Paul's talking about when he says keeping in step with the Spirit. It's an active process. It's not just about waiting for an opportunity or a problem to arise and responding to it, although that certainly happens. Instead, it's actually going after something. It's looking for where you want to be or what you want to accomplish. It's praying and asking Jesus his thoughts on those same questions and inviting him into the process. And the goal is to be in step with the Spirit of God, to to be in the sphere of grace, not to try and control God with your actions. So it's not telling God to get on board with your plan for your personal renewal. It's watching for what God is doing, what areas of growth Have you noticed in your life? Where do you feel stuck? Where are you missing the fruits of the Spirit but are very aware or even overwhelmed by the acts of the flesh? Those are great clues to what the Spirit of God may be up to in your life. So the thing is to proactively, with initiative, decide on an area of your life and plan an approach, something you're going to try, an experiment, a faith experiment, something that you're going to do differently that maybe you've seen pattern in the life of Jesus. So let's try this. Let's just take a moment. I want you to close your eyes. Maybe take a deep breath, maybe two, maybe three. And what I want you to do is think of an area in your life where you're stuck. Where you feel like you're often choosing between good and evil. You got it? Okay, good. Now, don't think about willpower or how you resist next time or what you feel like you might be missing. Instead, think about what a good life the best life in that area, in that relationship, in that situation would look like? What does it look like? What does health look like? What does life look like? 
Ask the Holy Spirit what the best, healthiest, most amazing life would look like in that situation. You see it? Now, what's in your way? What's keeping you from that? What's the challenge you face? Ask God, how do I get over or around or through that? Ask the Spirit, what can I try to overcome that evil that's in the way? What can you try? What can you do? And let your imagination picture that thing. Okay, you can open your eyes. So here's what I'd like you to do. If you, if you want to see something different, it could just be an exercise like, oh, that was interesting. You can go about your life. But if you actually want that thing that you pictured of what the healthy, filled with life experience in that broken or troubled area of your life would be, if you want to see that actually happen in your life, not just do a mental exercise or a prayer exercise about it, but if you want to see that happen, Try the thing that your imagination and hopefully the Holy Spirit was involved brought your mind to as a way to try and live or experience something different where you're stuck. Try that thing with discipline as a way to keep in step with the Spirit and invite the Spirit's power into your life. We're not talking about willpower. We're talking about an invitation to the Holy Spirit made through action trying something. Where every choice you make, every discipline move you make, is a prayer, an invitation to the Holy Spirit. And tell a friend so that it's real and you have some encouragement to follow through on your experience. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I know when we're stuck in, I personally know when we're stuck in an area of our lives, uh, this isn't easy. So, Father, I pray you put us sincerely in that sphere of grace that keeps us hoping, trying new things even when we fall on our face. May we find that way to keep in touch with you and your spirit and stay in that sphere of grace. May you give us hope when we feel like we failed again, things will never change. And would you also give us the grace of breakthroughs? no matter what the challenges are that we face. Amen.